Thanks, Ron, for leading those songs for us. We're glad you're here with us. If you're visiting, it's wonderful to have you. And uh, no doubt some of the things that we do are a little strange. They're strange even to us sometimes. And uh, as we get started this morning, I would like to put forward uh, some new verses that I'd like us to be working on downloading into the old gray matter. So I'm jumping back into our lesson series on Acts, but as we start, I just wanted us to have these verses before us. So these are three new verses that are not new verses because I've been talking about them, but as we've been working on Ephesians 6, the armor of God, now we're moving on to some of these other verses to add to what we're building on. First, Matthew 28:18 through 20, you can read that larger section for that context with all of these. That's a great thing to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is about the mission of God and the work that we have been given to do. But that work is going to be very hard for us to accomplish if we've not also cultivated a relationship of love with God. And so this next verse comes in. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second greatest commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love of God, mission of God. And to accomplish those things, we as a church have to be devoted to certain things. And so this last familiar verse comes in. What did the early church devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. If we can just do those four things, I think the Holy Spirit is going to do amazing things among this church body. He will do His work to change hearts and direct our hearts and our minds, our soul and our strength to our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to back up just a step Uh, Because it's been a while through the holidays, we've been talking about vision and purpose and direction, and we had a sermon where we were looking at Christmas time, how this world has changed forever because of Jesus Christ. So before all of that, we were in Acts, and it's in Acts chapter 6 that we have the story of uh, Grecian widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Uh, Just real quick for context for that, Um, widows were a very vulnerable part of ancient society. And so the church gathered together their resources to help take care of these widows. Well, the Grecian Jews were not being uh, having a fair share of everything. And so that division is along ethnic lines, basically, which was an inequality in the early church that was a challenge to them. So there's some growing pains that the church faced. 
And, this, and as we read through Acts, we see that those challenges to the church, they come from inside and they come from outside, inside the church itself. So this dis- unfair distribution was within the church itself. The situation with Ananias and Sapphira, that was in the church itself. But they're also having these larger confrontations going on outside of the church body with the Jewish authorities primarily at this point. But we will see that persecution and that challenge to the fledgling church expand. So this group of young people, they are learning, young Christians, they are learning how to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. They are learning how to be courageous. So... We have those two uh, priorities I would like to draw our attention to from Acts chapter 6. They didn't stop the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles kept that as a priority. And yet they called these men forward to help take care of this situation of inequality among the distribution. And so Stephen is named as one of those who is put forward uh, in this group to help take care of widows. And I also made a point that, you know, it's not just the apostles doing this. This is a group, a fellowship that's coming together, and everyone has a part to play in that. And so there's a lot of work to be done in this church. And so they assign people certain areas of responsibility. And that's a good pattern for us and something that we need to be about too. So now let's jump into verse 8 of chapter 6, and we find out more about this Stephen fellow. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So we've already read in a few verses before that that Stephen is a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And we know that he did humble work waiting on tables for widows. But now we find out also that he is involved in the working of miraculous signs and wonders. And so there's two things, two progressions that I want to note from this. Because I think there's some significance there. This is the first time we've heard about kind of not just Jesus and not just the apostles, but a more normal kind of guy who is being used by God in amazing ways. So two things that I want to just draw our attention to. I think that Stephen's humble work, waiting on tables, taking care of widows, uh, it helps make him safe and prepares him for more glorious work, working of miracles and witnessing in the power of the Holy Spirit, which we'll read about. And number two... The working of miracles associated with the Holy Spirit, it began with Jesus, the Son of God. It began before this, but it was unique in Jesus, the Son of God. It continued with the apostles, who were Hebraic Jews, and now it's manifest in a servant to the widows, who was a Grecian Jew. So it's like when Jesus came, the incarnation of the Son of God, it is the rock in the middle of the pond, and the apostles doing the works of God. That's a ripple out there. And now we have a further ripple where we have Grecian Jews who are going to be miracle workers, basically. And it goes on from there. And sometimes the Holy Spirit has to teach the church where they should be going. 
So this is just one more ripple in the things that are going on, I believe. I think there's also, uh, this alludes some way, you know that Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and then the history recorded in Acts were written by Luke, the same person. And so this isn't the first time we've kind of seen this idea of progression from Jesus through Jesus' disciples through other disciples that are discipled by disciples. So it just keeps on growing. And so in Luke chapter 9, we have the story of Jesus sending out the twelve. And he gives them power and authority to preach the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, and to drive out demonic forces. And then just a chapter later, it's not just the twelve this time. It's a, it's a bigger group, a group that didn't get to spend as much time with Jesus, uh, 72 of them. They are sent out by Jesus with a similar charge and similar authority. And just to, to uh, draw our attention to it really quick, in Luke chapter 10, 17 and 18, that group of 72 less trained disciples, they return with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, Jesus at that point, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Why is this the point where Satan falls from heaven? There's some significance there, I think. And I think it has to do with this. Jesus can see the ramifications of these events. Where the works of the kingdom of God which were uniquely his at the beginning, had gone from him to works that the apostles themselves were beginning to do. And then other disciples broader than that begin to do the works of the kingdom of God. And this is significant for us today because I think we stand in that heritage and that line too. We all know that we have the capacity to do, to do really bad things to do evil, to give in to sin and temptation, to hurt other people around us, to destroy our life and the lives of others. We all know that. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I also have the potential to do the works of the kingdom of God. That means everywhere we go, we have the potential of bringing good of bringing justice, of bringing the power of the kingdom of God to bear in our lives, that we have the opportunity and the power through Jesus to make other people's lives better, to not give in to sin and temptation and all of the things that want to control our lives and ruin our lives and destroy things around us. You see, I think the story of Acts is a story of a church learning to follow after and work together with the Holy Spirit. And this is a church, a church together with the Holy Spirit is the church that becomes unstoppable. It is a church that changes the world. 
And I believe that we're invited into that legacy, just our humble little church here at the Eugene Church of Christ. Because of the Spirit of God, we get to continue in that legacy of changing people's realities. I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. I get to live a whole different kind of life because of Jesus Christ. Stephen, I just want to point out, I think he's a rather ordinary guy in a lot of ways. He's not an apostle. He's not a Hebrew of Hebrews, as it was said. He grew up speaking Greek. Special servant to the widow's table, it was not a prestigious title. He's a normal guy, but he's abnormal in some ways. Let me point those out. He was filled with certain things. Three times in Acts chapter 6, right away, it says in in regard to Stephen or the people with Stephen that they were full of certain things. He was among those who was chosen because he was recognized as the community as one who was full of the Spirit and wisdom. Full of faith and the Holy Spirit from verse 5. Full of God's grace and power in verse 8. He filled his life with certain things. He cultivated certain things. And that's why I believe the Holy Spirit was able to use him in such amazing ways. He's a regular guy. Except that he was sold out for Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. So he encounters opposition from the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. And they can't stand up against his wisdom, we are told, and the, the Holy Spirit being with him. So they're kind of embarrassed by him. They can't refute him. And so they go to resist him with more devious means. And so evil actions result from people who resist the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 11, they secretly persuaded. So this is kind of behind the schemes. They're trying to move the, the, the chess pieces on the board. It says that they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. It says they seized Stephen. They drug him out. They were, and it says they produced false witnesses, people to mislead and turn things in their direction and cloud the information that the people were getting. But all those who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I think that they could tell just by looking at This is not a normal criminal. This is not someone who's the normal kind of seditious element that they're having to deal with. I think that there's something in the countenance of Stephen that they could tell maybe something else is going on here. And so I think something about Stephen's gentleness, something about his countenance, it affords him an opportunity to present his case before the whole Sanhedrin, the leadership of the nation of Israel. 
he gets this chance to confront them and to speak truth. So the high priest asks him this question, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. It's kind of like he's asked this yes or no question. And Stephen is going to take this and he's going to run with it. And he, we have recorded here the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts is his reply to this, this yes or no question of the high priest. Because in the Spirit of God, Stephen is ready for what's coming. And he's going to leverage every chance he's given to somehow turn that to the glory of God. It's interesting, though, the things that he argues from. Instead of starting out arguing about Jesus directly or about the kingdom of God directly, I think in the wisdom of the Spirit, Stephen crafts his defense from the history he shares with his audience. He is appealing to well-known and well-attested history that is shared between him and that whole Sanhedrin, even Sadducees, not just the Pharisees, even Sadducees. He appeals to this Old Testament stories and Scripture. And so there are certain charges that are brought against Stephen. What, are, what is he being accused of, basically? Well, he's speaking against the temple. And then they say that somehow through Jesus, the temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus never said, I will destroy the temple. But that's what they were kind of, that's the trumped up version of the charges. And then also they charge him with speaking against the law. This, they're changing the customs of Moses. They're not doing things the way they're supposed to be doing things. So we know from from what uh, Luke says that these charges are perverted, they're trumped up, they're uh, amplified, certain things are minimized and other things are put forward. But they do actually, I think, have an element of truth to them. Jesus did say things about the temple, like not one stone will be left on another. And he had other cryptic sayings that he said too. Uh, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. So people heard that, and there was some misunderstanding that followed all of this. And then this charge of uh, the laws being handed down, the law of Moses, that Jesus was trying to destroy it. Jesus himself says, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But he also illustrates some changes that needed to be made. Because Jesus Christ was always more interested in the condition of a person's heart than with a list of rules. Because you can keep all the rules and have the wrong heart. And that can destroy your relationship with God. So from the vested interests of the religious gatekeepers, the Sadducees, this ruling body, Jesus and his disciples, they do constitute a very real threat. They are a threat to business as usual, 
of doing things all the same way. So in some way, Stephen's defense that he makes, it goes toward answering the charges that are brought against him. And so he launches into this, this big history lesson, it looks like. And so it takes all of chapter 7. It goes through this history. And so I'm not going to go through that step by step, but I'm going to just share what, some of what I think the logic is of why he chose the verses that he chose. So I know this is a lot. You're like, okay. The charges concerning the temple. Well, Stephen talks about Abraham. Before there was a temple, there was a relationship with Abraham. Before even circumcision took place, circumcision is a sign of something. There's a reality that existed before then. Okay, before there was a temple, he talks about Joseph and how the patriarchs in jealousy turned against Joseph. But it says, even though you know, there wasn't a temple, God was with Joseph. And it says, God rescued Joseph from all of his troubles. Before there was a temple, God was with Moses. And his glory was seen in this burning bush that wasn't consumed. Because God was there, that place was made holy. Was it the bush that made that holy? Was it the ground that was made holy? No, it was the presence of God. That's what Stephen is saying. And if we recall that story, God even says to Moses, take off your sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy. It's not the temple. It's the presence. And then there's this tabernacle from Israel's history. (coughs) Excuse me. That tabernacle is what? It's basically this luxurious tent that they fitted out that did not stay still. They had to build it as a tent because it went following after God's presence. God's presence would move. The people would perceive it. They'd pull up the tent and follow God. And that's the way it was for a long time. And then even Solomon, the man who builds the temple originally, he said... The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built you. You see what Stephen's doing here? He is crafting this argument. He's showing them, basically from Israel's own history, look, God's presence and his purposes have always been a lot bigger than just a building than just this temple. Because it is the presence of God, it is the promises of God, it is the purposes of God that make a place holy. Not the other way around. And if just as an aside, uh, Mark chapter 15 and Matthew chapter 27 talk about when Jesus died on the cross... The curtain in the temple, that curtain which separated God from people, it's ripped in half from the top to the bottom. This is no small curtain. From the top to the bottom. And basically that's a sign saying God goes out at that point. And through the Holy Spirit that comes, he makes his temple in human hearts. Because without the presence of God, 
What is the temple really? It's an empty shell. Without the presence of God, what is this church really? It's an empty shell. Now the charge concerning the law of Moses. The patriarchs resisted God. And because of jealousy, they sold Joseph into slavery. They resisted God. God worked through that situation to bring about great good. See, that's the thing about all of this. People resist the Lord, but the Lord's purpose is always accomplished and fulfilled. Things are going really well in the kingdom of heaven. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's accomplished it through Jesus Christ. We get to be a part of that victory. Don't forget that. The patriarchs resisted God because of jealousy. The Israelites resisted the leadership of Moses. This is all to be read in Acts chapter 7. Who made you ruler and judge over us? And yet it says, He, God, or he, Moses, was sent to be the ruler and deliverer by God himself. God was trying to use Moses. There was resistance to that. And even that kind of a crescendo to that resistance to God and that resistance to Moses, you have this whole incident of this golden calf. And then it mentions these other gods that the, peop that the people were worshiping as well. This idolatry that existed. And then Stephen brings up this, this prophecy. This prophecy all the way back to Deuteronomy. See, the, the Sadducees, they didn't accept even the whole Old Testament. But so Stephen makes sure to point out a prophecy that is all the way in the Pentateuch, or the Torah, which they held as sacred. And the words are this from Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. You must listen to him. So basically to this second charge against being against the law of Moses, Stephen is saying, you want to talk about working against, the God, against God and the purposes of God? Let's talk about working against God. And after a careful examination of the history of the people of Israel, their history of resisting God, everything crescendos to this moment of incredible boldness and bravery and courage. And Stephen gets to speak the words that are going to cost him his life now. And he says this, after all the history lesson, you stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. 
You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Boom! (laughs) You want to talk about the law? Look what you have done. You murdered the righteous one of God. And then this law that you wholly, highly esteem, that you claim is so sacred to you, you have not kept it. You have not obeyed it. So I just want to point out one other thing about this set of verses here. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist who? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It doesn't talk about Jesus at this point. It doesn't talk about God. It does, but it's through the Holy Spirit who is specifically mentioned in this case. Why is that? I think it reveals to us some, something about the way the Holy Spirit works. See, the Holy Spirit... Is, 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 is of God and is God. And the Holy Spirit we see is the one who carries out a lot of times this will of God in working with other people. A lot of the scriptures, they came about through inspiration from the Holy Spirit. The, the voice of the prophets, it's the working of the Holy Spirit to help them understand the will of God. In fact, when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit Well, what is that gift? Well, that gift has all kinds of implications, but central to it all, I think, is that you and I have the potential through the Holy Spirit to have the heart of Jesus Christ in the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we behave. We can have the same faith that Jesus Christ himself had. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. What are a few characteristics of people who resist the Holy Spirit? Resisting the Holy Spirit. Stiff-necked? What does that mean? Stubborn. Uncircumcised hearts? That means you have a hard heart. Uncircumcised ears? Ears that don't listen. You can hear the words, but you don't listen. I think those are good questions to ask yourself. What are you stubborn about? What are you stubborn about? What are you hard-hearted about? What words are you just not willing to listen to? Maybe the Spirit will show you something through that question. A person who has lived a life habitually resisting the work of the Holy Spirit they can't hear the Spirit's rebuke. They can't hear the Spirit's direction. And so they will do everything they can to silence a voice of truth they refuse to accept, even if that means that they will end up doing some violence. It says, when they heard this, Stephen's rebuke, basically, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's not good. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven, op- I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And when he says this, At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. What do they see in this situation? What does Stephen get to see in this situation? Here's some things that you see, or rather you don't see, if you are resisting the Holy Spirit in your life. They see an enemy. And they cannot even contemplate that Stephen could possibly be speaking words of love and words of truth. They see an enemy. They see a voice that needs to be silenced. They see someone who needs to be killed. If you are resisting the Holy Spirit in your life, you are blind in some way to your own blindness. Contrast that with what Stephen gets to see. What does Stephen see? We already know he's serving his church on the widow's tables. He's a miracle worker. He gets to see people's lives changed. He gets to see, in this case, the glory of God manifest. Because what happens to him while this is going on? He sees the Son of Man at the Father's side, enthroned and reigning over everything. Basically what this is saying, in the Spirit of God, the heavens open and he gets to see this is all true. And I also want to make a point, and I think this is something from Acts here. We hear about the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus isn't sitting in this case. When he sees heaven, He sees his advocate and his judge not sitting, but standing. Standing. Jesus has taken this very serious. And he sees the faith of Stephen at work. He's not taking it sitting down. Your God is standing to look at the faithfulness of his servants. So what are the main points that I would like us to take away from today's sermon? I think there's, there's a lot that we could pull out of this, but a few things that I would like to highlight are this. If we want to see the glory of God, if we want that to be manifest in our lives, 
I think there's certain things that we need to do, certain things that we need to be devoted to, committed to. Stephen had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Can you see that? Relationships, they don't just happen willy-nilly. They take presence and time together. A relationship is something that needs to be built, it needs to be invested in, it needs to be cultivated. So the question for us then, is the Holy Spirit your friend? The Holy Spirit is Stephen's friend. How can I make the Holy Spirit my friend? And this gives, I think this ties right in to some of the uh, themes that I pulled out from earlier chapters of Acts. If you want Acts 2 kind of power, if you want Acts 2 kinds of results, you need to have Acts 2 kinds of devotion. There's a power that is reserved for the disciples of Jesus Christ that will not come while you're standing on the fence. Oh, if my church just did this, maybe we could do this. Or if it... There's a power that is reserved for those whose hearts are pure and not double-minded. When you go all in from Jesus Christ, when that becomes very clear with what you're about, the way you live your life, the way you are with other people, when Jesus becomes your one and only, that's when you begin to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in ways that you never even considered to be a possibility. But Stephen, he had devoted himself to certain things. He had cultivated certain things, as we talked about. Working with the Holy Spirit, Stephen had filled his life with faith, wisdom, grace, and power, or attributes we read. You know, when I read that list, I think about the way that faith works. I think about the way that grace works. How do you get wisdom? Does it come through life experience? It comes through study? It comes through a whole... Uh, grace is the way that God meets us when we step out in faith. So in all of these attributes, they imply not something stagnant where you're waiting for a divine lightning bolt to hit you before you get off your duff and do anything. They all imply steps of faith into action. And it's in those actions that grace comes. They're all active things that he filled his life with. But they're not works. It's all grace. It's all grace. Number two, Stephen wasn't just on the sidelines, kind of observing. If they get this, then I'll do this. Stephen got his hands dirty in humble works of service. He wasn't building a nice resume that could say, I was the servant of widows. I think that this whole history that he was able to pull up in a moment and just when that time of crisis came and he had an opportunity with the Sanhedrin, it's clear that Stephen had done a lot of studying in his life. He had devoted himself to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42. Things had happened in his life that prepared him for this moment. Number four, I think Stephen's boldness is a sign of the Holy Spirit. It's also a prayer of the church that is being answered. 
You remember when the apostles were able to get out of uh, jail and they were released? And the church is so excited. What did they pray for? It wasn't comfort. It wasn't safety. It was boldness. Boldness. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The one he sees standing next to the throne of God. He didn't have to think about and wonder about, am I going to hear a well-done, good and faithful servant? He got to see it while he was still alive and as he was passing. Son of God standing at the throne of God. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. There's a lot of similarities that are taking place here. Luke describes Stephen and kind of portrays him as the ideal disciple. What does the ideal disciple become like? He becomes like Jesus, even in the way he dies. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And it's a good thing that, they pray, that Stephen prayed that prayer of grace and love and forgiveness even at the end. Because one of the people in that crowd we read, those who were there, the witnesses, they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul was the one who was there giving approval to his death. God answered that prayer of Stephen, at least in this case, with Saul. Because Saul becomes Paul. And he has to learn how much he's got to suffer for the name of Jesus. Ron, you can come forward. I think about what has happened with this, uh, this history that's portrayed here. We know that Paul and Luke were associates. associates. They worked together. Luke was the one who wrote Acts. It's very likely that the reason we have so much detail and so much information from Stephen's speech is because Paul was there telling Luke the details himself. And I think about Paul remembering himself in that place to his shame, about how he was blind to and resisting the Holy Spirit, so blind that he approves of murder and is about to become a hunter of Christians, someone who hunts Christians. But it's not the end of the story not the end of our story either. We may have resisted the Holy Spirit our whole lives. We may have resisted Him for a very long time. While there is life, while there is breath, there is hope that you can live a different kind of life in the power and strength 
working the works of the kingdom, undoing evil everywhere you go. That's our hope. That's our legacy that we've been given. So however these words strike you this morning, if you uh, would like the prayers of this church, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism and be added to this church body, you have an opportunity to come forward and tell me those things while we stand and sing together.